You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we learn more about the plan to defuel the Navy's underground bulk fuel storage facility at Red Hill. The timeline is being moved up months earlier. It could start in October and be complete by early next year. This morning, Navy Admiral John Wade of Joint Task Force Red Hill stopped by our studios to talk about the process and how to do it safely with a troubled firefighting system. Here's Wade. Well, first of all, it's nice to see you again, and thank you for having me back. We're in phase three of our defueling plan. Phase three is to set the conditions for defueling to make conditions safe. There's a lot of activity going on, but one of the major lines of effort are these repairs, enhancements, and modifications to make the facility safe to conduct this evolution, you know, without incident. These repairs were mandated by the state uh, Department of Health through a third-party engineering firm. And so we've been meticulously working through these repairs. There were 253. We are, as of today, complete with 220 of those. But it's more than just doing the repairs. We have a robust, what we call quality validation program, where the contractor reviews the procedures and the end result to ensure that uh, everything has been done to standard. Then the government reviews that with quality assurance. Then the joint task force audits the quality assurance. Then we send all the documentation to a objective third-party engineering firm who then inspects and reviews the documentation. And once that is approved, then we forward it to the Department of Health and the EPA and then they review to ensure that it is uh, safe. So of those 220 jobs, 56 have been cleared with conditional approval by uh, the regulators. They have uh, a whole host of others, so we'll continue to review this process. This is critically important because this is what buys down risk. But on top of the repairs, we are working in partnership with the Department of Health and the Environmental Protection Agency to go through all of our what's called concept of operations, to review our procedures on how we're going to defuel. And then we are simultaneously conducting training at the individual and at the team level. And then we are also simultaneously working response plans. We don't want to have an incident, but if we do, we have to be ready. So a lot going on, but we're moving out deliberately, methodically, uh, because it's the right thing to do. And I appreciate that you're taking great care now, you know, given the situation that we had with the the leak in, uh, in the drinking water. But I have to ask, I mean, why didn't we have these safeguards in place? I mean, my understanding is, you know, if you can compare it, let's say, to a a nuclear submarine, there's risk involved, and it's either your your pipes, your valves, or your pumps. And my understanding is that there's a three-party layup that somebody, you know, uh, whoever's going to do the work gets the work checked and then checked again. So do we not have that in place? I, I can't answer that question. I wasn't here. The Secretary of Defense in March of 2022 made the decision to defuel and close the facility. Uh, A couple months later, he made the decision to move the defueling piece of that mission into the what's called the operational chain of command under U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, and then the establishment of a joint task force to then operationalize this. I was honored to have been selected. My initial mission was to safely and expeditiously defuel. On 29 November, there was an AFFF mishap. Uh, About a week later, my duties and responsibilities were expanded to not only set the conditions for and then to execute defueling, but then to centrally manage the day-to-day operations of the Red Hill facility. I took that added responsibility seriously. My team and I did immediate mission planning. Uh, We realized that we needed more people. We asked for over 100 personnel. Uh, I received those personnel, and now we've implemented measures for day-to-day safety and risk controls to reduce the chance of a mishap. We have also gone through in meticulous detail the investigation from the 22, excuse me, the 21 spill, also the AFFF investigation that I conducted, and we've incorporated those lessons into our procedures, into our training, again, to reduce risk to the greatest extent possible. So, um, you know, I, I can't change the past, but what I can do is move forward and, and uh, do what we can here for a very complex evolution, and uh, that's, that's why we're here. And so this process of defueling, 
it will hopefully start in October. Uh, you know, your report deals a lot with potential leaks. You know, you're going to be doing drills, that kind of thing, to make sure that you've got things buttoned down. But I guess I wonder about the risk of a fire and if there was, let's say, to be a blast. And I, from what I understand, it's not so much the fuel, but maybe the fumes mm. that uh, create the risk. And so my question to the Navy was, you know, what is the blast zone? You know, if there was a worst case scenario, is it a mile? Would it take out Kaiser Moanalua? Would it take out Tripler? What can you tell us? Well, first of all, uh, I appreciate the question. As a naval officer and, uh, you know, serving in, in, in the fleet for over 30 years, I've commanded a number of ships. And besides combat, the two, you know, most dangerous situations at sea is a fire or flooding. So I've always taken fire seriously, uh, risk to personnel and, of course, to, to the ship and the safety of the ship. And when you now look at what I am responsible for, the safety and security of the Red Hill facility that has 104 million gallons, a fire has been on my mind. It's on my mind every single day. So, you know, as we execute these repairs and there's other repairs and, and things that are now going on that I centrally manage, we're doing everything we can to reduce risk safety walkthroughs, reducing fire hazards, and then uh, risk management controls to reduce uh, risk even further with fire watches, fed fire, and hot work chits that I've described before. I'm aware of uh, uh, the concerns by OSHA and uh, Mr. Tanaka. I've, I've also spoken to Mr. Lau of his concerns. This explosive concern it goes back to a 2010 survey that the Navy performed when they looked at the equipment in Red Hill. And there was a antiquated ventilation system that was not to code, and that if you had fumes building up in the lower access tunnel and there was an emergency, those fans would not be able to remove that vapor, which could produce an explosive threat. It also presented a hazard to personnel because if you have a fire, uh, and a fuel fire specifically, that's black smoke, and now you can't see, and now you can't evacuate. The good news is that the, the ventilation system was completely modernized in 2019. So that has reduced the risk significantly of, a, of an explosive threat. The other things that reduce the threat of an explosion is that the tanks are vented. So you don't have an enc enclosed tank where no air can evacuate. So if there were a fire, so you'd have to have a fire, which would then heat up the, that vapor and the, and the fuel, it needs to uh, expand. And then if there's re relief there, then, then that re reduces the chance of an explosion. If there were an explosion, it would not be significant, not impact the community there, uh, just because of the distance between the, the perimeter, perimeter uh, fence line and such. Uh, Inside the facility, you know, if you have a portion of a, uh, a pipeline that, uh, you know, were perhaps uh, uh, with valves closed uh, and then heat source, you could have a limited explosion, but it, with 100, 200, 300 feet below the mountain, it's not going to create a, a concern to the community at all. If you're just joining us, we are hearing directly from Joint Task Force uh, Red Hill uh, Admiral John Wade, who stopped by our studio this morning. The big news is that the military may begin emptying the Red Hill underground tanks of jet fuel months ahead of schedule, and we will hear more about the process and how to deal with a problematic fire suppression system right after a short break. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Theater Center, presenting An Evening with Judy Collins. The singer-songwriter performs 7.30 p.m. Wednesday, May 31st. Tickets available at hawaiitheater.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we hear from the team at Oceanet about an innovation called Blast Ninja. We'll find out how the Oceanet Aerospace team found a way to leverage jet fighter noise reduction to create a quiet, abrasive blast nozzle. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. get back to our interview with Navy Admiral John Wade of Joint Task Force Red Hill. A plan to drain the underground tanks of jet fuel could now happen in October, months ahead of schedule, if the uh, State Department of Health and uh, EPA officials agree enough safeguards are in place. We asked about the threat of a blast and whether it would impact Kaiser Mwanalua Medical Center or Tripler Hospital. The military has said the jet fuel is not as volatile as what had been stored there in decades, but the concern isn't unreasonable as those are key community facilities. Here's Wade. I think the Board of Water Supply is concerned about, you know, maybe what could that do to the aquifer and the drinking water for, you know, most of Honolulu. The focus then is on safety uh, to make sure that we do this right. As far as the situation with the uh, AFFF, the um, firefighting foam, is that in use? The military has decided to try and pull back on some of the use of that. So let me just go back to your defueling question. So we are methodically working the plans to defuel, but we're also simultaneously working through emergency response if we had a fire or a spill. And we're going through what's called mission planning to determine what we say most likely and most dangerous for each phase of the defueling. And, you know, we're working that with the regulators, so that's important. Now, going back to uh, your question on AFFF, there are three AFFF systems that support the Red Hill facility. One in and around the underground storage tanks. Second, by the what's called the underground pump house, but it's the end of the tunnel on Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam that then leads to the, the piers. And then there's a small pump room on Joint Base Pearl Harbor that houses the pump that transfers fuel over to Hickam. So three AFFF systems. The AFFF system that supports the underground storage tanks, that is the one that is over the aquifer. That has been disabled. That is secured. That has been secured since the 29 November mishap. My team and I have been working in close partnership with the Navy, because the Navy owns the facility, with fire engineers to come up with an alternate solution that would not have to reintroduce AFFF into the system. So balancing personnel safety, fire safety, and the environment. And we have forwarded that recommended uh, approach to the regulators, and now they're reviewing that. It is basically, it's manual, portable fire equipment that's friendly to the environment, sodium bicarbonate, with fire watch personnel that are trained to take immediate and controlling actions if we had a leak to reduce the risk of a fire. And we do that also by ensuring that when we're doing defueling that we don't have any heat sources and and, and the such. If the regulators determine that the, the threat is or the risk is too high, and they mandate that we need to reintroduce AFFF, then my commitment is to ensure that the AFFF system is working properly, it's inspected, and I'll be fully transparent with the regulators, the community, and our elected officials. So that's the current status. You do have a plan over the next 90 days to be able to let the public know what to expect with this. So we have spoken to a number of concerned community members, and they're very interested in what are we doing and how are we doing it. So next week, we're going to hold a defueling open house at the Kehi Lagoon Memorial Park. It's uh, the 23rd and 24th from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock each evening. And we're going to methodically and simply walk through all the phases of defueling and also highlight what we're going to do to prevent an accident. But if there is one, how would we respond? Have we built in any time for tweaking the plan if, let's say, the EPA or the Department of Health you know, has concerns about you know, a certain system? The defueling plan was updated yesterday and submitted to the regulators. I'm very pleased to report that it's a conditions-based approach that is in an accelerated timeline so that we are, we are on glide slope here to start our defueling effort in the middle of October. 
That's several months early. Now, it still requires approvals by the uh, regulators, but we're, we're moving forward, we're conducting training, we've got numerous drills and rehearsals. And if I may, I, I'll just go back to unpacking and the recent dewatering that was you know, covered in the media here recently. We have a evolution, we review the procedures, we engage with the regulators to ensure that they approve it. Once approved, then we train, and we trained hard at the individual and team level. Then we did tabletop exercises, then we rehearsed, then we brought the EPA and the uh, DOH to review to ensure that they were comfortable, and then we executed methodically, and then upon completion, captured lessons learned, and then brought that back into the planning process for the next milestone, that's high velocity learning. So we're gonna continue that process for every major milestone and evolution that we need to do to conduct the defueling. Can you say where the fuel is gonna go? Do we have above ground tanks that will be used as storage sites? So the fuel will be gravity drained down to uh, Pearl Harbor Hickam. Some of the fuel will go into the, the tank farm there on Pearl Harbor just so that it can be consumed for operations and training. But the majority of the fuel will be loaded on bulk fuel storage tankers, and then those tankers will then redistribute that fuel to different bulk fuel storage facilities within the United States, some on the western side of the uh, island, also internationally, and then some of the fuel will be relocated on oilers throughout the Pacific. This will add resiliency to our fuel posture within the Pacific. As far as what gets left in the tanks, uh, because your report says that you do have to leave some fuel in there? Now, let me make it clear. We are going to remove every single drop out of the Red Hill facility. But when you're doing a complex evolution, you have to break the project up into parts. So this phase is going to be the removal of all fuel that we can do via gravity draining. And what we have learned from the repairs and the enhancements and modifications that there are pockets of fuel within the facility. There's low point drains, there's traverse pipelines, there's bends. I mean, we're talking about a facility that's three and a half miles long. So this phase will get us to a point where we have, you know, 99.85% of the fuel out. And then the next phase will be removing this 100 to 400,000 gallons. That's a calculation. In fact, today, we're working a contract to do detailed laser surveys from the top to the bottom so we can determine where those pockets of fuel will be after we gravity drain so we can then build another plan that's methodical, that's deliberate, that gets to the point where there is no, I repeat, no fuel left in this facility. Okay, but the end date, projected end date January, that's when you hope to have all that, the fuel out? No, the January end date is the end of this phase to remove all fuel from gravity draining. So in January, if we are able to get the approvals and everything goes to plan, we will have that 100 to 400,000 gallons remaining, but then we're gonna work to get that out. It's, you know, if, if you were visiting a friend over in Kailua, you would leave here, you get onto H1, then work your way to H3. That's a large part of the trip, but then you're gonna have to take a couple of lefts and rights to work into the neighborhood to get to your friend. Well, that's the last part that's more detailed. That's what we're going to have to do. And we're going to have to take that very, very seriously because, you know, like I've said, for every drop that's above the aquifer is a threat to the people of Hawaii and our environment, and we've got to get after that. We've been hearing from Navy Admiral John Wade, head of the Joint Task Force Red Hill. He joined us in our studios earlier this morning to clarify the timetable for the draining of the underground fuel tanks, which currently hold more than a million gallons of fuel for the Pacific Fleet. Filling a void on Molokai. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light on the line today. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. So, you know, your story deals with the huge void that was left when uh, Dr. Emmett Aluli died last fall because he was such a mainstay in that community. 
he was. He had a practice on Molokai for 47 years, and, you know, he knew generations of the same family. Um, so the loss of him as a medical provider on that island was huge, and it also coincided with another unexpected death of another doctor on the island. Um, and so, you know, just, just two doctors who had been really embedded in the community uh, passed away, and that created this this gap in on-island uh, primary care access. Yeah, and while the community is dealing, you know, with their grief, uh, they do still need medical care. Uh, so what's in the works? Yes, so, uh, you know, I think uh, these doctors were well-known throughout the state by, by many other medical practitioners, and when they passed away, folks said, you know, what can we do to help? Uh, and one doctor, her name is Dr. Kaohi Sang Akiona. She uh, is based on the Big Island, uh, where she's a physician and an advocate for equity in healthcare. You know, she came up with this plan to sort of open a new branch of her Big Island practice on Molokai. And uh, that plan came to fruition this week. On Monday, uh, she opened the doors to a new primary care, urgent care. Uh, and street medicine practice that's open Monday through Wednesday. And, you know, what's interesting about it is, you know, although Dr. Aluli is is no longer with us, uh, his staff has been rehired at this clinic. Uh, the clinic, it, it, it is Dr. Aluli's former office, so it's the same location. And all of Dr. Aluli's, you know, former medical equipment has been absorbed into this practice as well. Well, that's just tremendous because the need is so great. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of patients just, just want to come back to their, their their doctor that they've always had, and while he's not there, this sort of is the next, the next best option. So she's going to be able to somehow straddle those two clinics then? Yeah, you know... It's. Uh, I think this is sort of something that um, everyone's sort of figuring out as they go. They know that there's a huge need, and they're just doing what they can to fill that void. And so, um, the doctor says she's recruited two other doctors to, to you know, help provide care. Uh, a local family has offered free lodging for at least a few months to help them get the practice off the ground. Um, and of course, like I said, Dr. Aluli's staff. You know, locally based, they've been rehired. Um, so, you know, I think everyone's just trying their best and, and hoping it, it works out. They have set up a nonprofit. They're looking for funding. Um, so, it's sort of just folks who really wanted to to answer this call for more access to on island healthcare that doesn't require a plane trip to. Well, we all know how uh, critical medical services are needed on the neighbor islands. You know, often the uh, patients have to come to Honolulu, you know, if they don't have specialists there, you know, in the county. Uh, So it it is difficult. And then there's, you know, limited um, airlift. And so that's another challenge, too, that the uh, residents of the neighbor islands have had to to deal with. People here on Oahu don't realize uh, how easy they have it, you know, compared with the folks on the neighbor islands. Exactly. And, and now that there's only one airline servicing Molokai, you know, the, the access has just gotten that much more uh, spread thin. Um, you know, in, in this new practice, it, it certainly won't um, eliminate the need for folks to travel off-island for certain specialty care. Um, but for run-of-the-mill routine care, for urgent care, uh, you know, this practice will sort of help to begin to fill that void that was created last year, which, you know, no one expected um, and was so huge. Right. Well, uh, there is a, a, a great need for healthcare workers, doctors, you know, nurses that we hear shortages all the time. But uh, kudos for this doctor for stepping up. And uh, at least the community has a, has an alternative right now. Exactly. I think, you know, um, people will be happy to be able to go to the same office, see some of the same spaces, and get that care on island. Yeah, reassuring. Well, thank you so much, Brittany. You're welcome. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. You can read the story online. Visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from Outrigger Resorts and Hotels, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land. Outrigger.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Amster. And I'm Jake Eagle. We're co-authors of The Power of Awe. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about the benefits of awe in less than one minute per day. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. This month marks the fifth anniversary of the 2018 eruption along Kilauea's Lower East Rift Zone on the Big Island. Over the next three months, 24 fissures opened up and spewed lava that covered nearly 14 square miles of land in the Puna District, from the Leilani Estate subdivision down to Kapoho Bay. In some places, lava is over 200 feet deep and still cooling. Over 700 homes were destroyed, 2,000 people displaced, and 875 acres of new land created. It was an event that was unprecedented in scope and recorded history. So what are things like in the affected Puna communities now? The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with White County Civil Defense Administrator Tomridge Magno in our studios. What are some of your first memories of the eruption? Well, it kind of started before that time that magma became evident out of the ground. Once HVO, Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, basically gave me a call saying that Pu'o'o looked like the magma was moving on the ground, of course. They're tracking that through seismicity. From that time, and it was a few days before the eruption started, but, you know, magma was moving underground east towards Cape Kumukai, or that portion of the island, Highway 130, Leilani Estates, all those areas in that direction, smack dab in the middle of the East Rift Zone. And so, you know, we're, we're watching it, and sometimes Kilauea has these things called intrusions where the magma doesn't break the ground. And so, you know, we're watching it. We're putting out our messages. We're trying to get the, the citizens ready, letting them know what's happening, that there is a chance that they would have to be evacuating, so to be ready. So we had crews in the area monitoring the different roadways. The residents knew it. They, they felt the shaking. There was, you know, hundreds of earthquakes that they could just feel that tremor as the magma moved into the area. So our crews are there, they're monitoring what started happening as the roads start cracking. So we're watching the cracks, the usual evolution before a eruption, you know, you start getting gases coming out of the out of the cracks. And so we knew once we started seeing gases, there was a high likelihood that magma would be coming soon. And so, you know, when we got the word from the crews out there when they started seeing gases, okay, get out of there, start getting people out of there because the magma's coming soon. So that started the progression from, you know, magma being underground to being eruption and starting to impact the that Leilani subdivision. You can't forecast these things. We did not realize it was going to go through 24 different vents, settle at Fisher 8 and, and do four months of erupting and producing all that magma and lava flows and you know taking out 716 structures yeah it was it was amazing to watch happen i I know growing up on the big island i saw a lot of news coverage of kalapana you know lava coming down and and kind of wiping out houses and, and property there but i i don't think in my recollection ever a cinder cone or or, or or any eruption like opening up in the middle of a residential neighborhood and just starting to go active. Is that something that you guys were prepared for? We are, and we work closely with Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, so we know the areas that fissures and vents are going to open up. Those are considered zone one of the volcanism. Anything on the East Rift is like just what we saw, Leilani Estates is right there in zone one, and we know that's where where that's going to open up. You mentioned Kalapana. Kalapana is on in zone two, which is immediately adjacent to zone ones, and that's where flows are going to f- go into those areas. So what you saw in Kalapana was the results of fissures erupting in zone one, high up on the, the ridge line, and flowing several miles into areas that that had residential units. Whereas this one, like you pointed out, 
right there in the middle of the subdivision, the fissures are opening up. You know, over years of, of evolution, the forest grew up, so a lot of the previous lava features were kind of hidden. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you see it now, and, and that's the landscape that was hidden by the, the forest, lava tubes and, and cracks and so forth. It's been five years since the Kilauea eruption. I imagine some residents that have been impacted by the eruption, I'm sure they've either sold their property or moved away. I imagine the county may have acquired some of that property as well. What's the plan for the future? I think there's a lot of questions. I think one of them is, is the county going to reestablish some of the roads that were taken out by the lava flow? The plan is to reestablish the majority of roads, if not all of them. I think there's one stretch of, I believe it's 137, that went from Pohiki to the Kapoho Beach Lots area. That's not planned to be put back in. But a section of it coming from the 132 or the Four Corners intersection, as we call it, is going to make its way back towards the Kapoho uh, residential area. So all that will be put back into place. You know, it's, it's going to be paid under federal monies. At this point... You know, there's other things that like water. That water utility will not go back in. That one stretch of road that I mentioned. And like you mentioned, there's been a buyout program for you know primary and secondary residents as well as landowners. And so that, that has gone through and trying to lessen people's exposure there basically by creating more open spaces by buying out those, those other folks not sure how much people are going to be remaining, residents or private landowners, but, you know, we respect land ownership and people have that right to be out there, but they need to know that they're going to be still exposed. One interview that I did, just wanted to remind folks, because some people are saying, ah, oh, it won't happen for another 100 years again, but yeah. the eruption before this was 1960, and the eruption before 1960 was 1955 in that area. So, you know, it doesn't take 100 years Hmm. for activity to return to that that area. You know, right now, Kilauea is not erupting, but the summit Kilauea Halemaumau is showing seismicity, some tilt, increase in tilt, but nevertheless, uh, eruption is not imminent, but, you know, it's one of the most active volcanoes in the world. You had mentioned the, the buyback program. One thing that I learned recently that I wasn't aware of initially was that there's these tiers, right? You get paid more if it's your primary residence, and then it gets less if it's a secondary or a vacation rental. Is there an end date to that buyback program, or is that still out there? You're right. There's tiers, and the last tier that we were working on was um, buying up undeveloped land. And there is a, a time frame on that. I'm not sure what it is, but, yeah. you know, we, we try to get to a point where, you know, because these are federal programs and they want us to wrap it up. So we do public announcements, we do outreaches, we go into the community to make sure that folks that are aware of these programs and if they want to take advantage of it, you know, they can follow up with it and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here you know, shortly. And I know one big question I think a lot of people have, are there any plans for like a, a viewing area or some other way for the public to officially observe what was left behind by the eruption that those were issues especially during the the active part of that flow but that flow was so vigorous such a high volume that there was no real safe place for us to publicly open a viewing area even though i know folks were getting into private property and viewing the site was so spectacular but that came and went without us opening up any public viewing area the current you know, situation now is it's all private land. And so we respect people's private property. And I know there was trespassing issues early on. It continues. But the county does not, we're not planning any viewing areas. Just by driving around the areas, just along the highways, Highway 132, you go right through the flow field. You drive right through the river, the flow channel that Fisher 8 created, basically. And, and you can see all these features just by driving on the, the public roads. I had the opportunity to go with a private landowner onto some of the lava flow, and he took me on a tour, showed me some different things, and then took me up to the rim of Fisher 8. And the magnitude 
of what happened is just like mind-boggling. You can see it on TV, you can see pictures, but I, I don't think you really get a feel for the scope until you actually get to uh, certain vantage points. Was there anything about this eruption that amazed you? <laughs> I mean, you probably have seen it all, but what was like the most amazing part of it to you? Well, for one, you know, I enjoy, I've always watched eruptions from a young age, having grown up in Pune, and my dad, my family always taking us up, you know, to see summit eruptions up at Halimama or, or Kilauea But those were always kind of in a national park in, in calderas and, and during my career as a national park ranger, we, I dealt with pool flows the whole time. But this one with just the numerous vents and, and fissures, all these you know, cones just opening up and erupting lava, that was something I'd never seen. And to add that it's you know, in a community, in a residential neighborhood, that was something that I'd never experienced before. So all that put together was something that was amazing to me. Thanks so much for your time, Talmadge. Really appreciate you coming into the station. For us Big Island guys, it was such a, it was a pretty memorable event. Yes, it was. You know, uh, I say sometimes I get PTSD. <laughs> my office, the phones were ringing off the hook. I had so much people in my office that seemed like I had my own eruption going on in my office besides the eruption that was going on <laughs> out in the East Rift. But yeah, it was an amazing time. I bet you probably were the busiest guy on the island. Next to the mayor. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming in. Thank you. And that was Hawaii County Civil Defense Administrator Talmadge Magno talking with HBR's Russell Subiono about the 2018 Kilauea eruption. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Leilani Estates resident Chris Burmeister, who owns most of the land beneath Fisher 8, the most prominent of the volcanic cones active during the eruption. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And we've got an all-too-familiar bird song for you today, courtesy of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the spotted dove. Spotted doves were an early arrival to Hawaii for an introduced bird. Originally from India and Southeast Asia, they were first brought here by immigrants from China in the 1850s. Escaped spotted doves established a breeding population on Oahu by the 1870s and on most of the other main Hawaiian islands soon after that. Spotted doves are about 12 inches long from bill to tail, brownish gray, with really distinct black and white spotted feathers on the back of their necks. They're similar in color, but about twice the size of zebra doves, which are those common little doves that spend a lot of time on the ground and are often seen in parks begging for food from people. If you live in any urban or rural area across Hawaii, you likely have spotted doves living nearby and can hear their various types of coos throughout the day. Male spotted doves can often be seen on the ground giving elaborate courtship displays that include lots of bowing and tail flaring in an attempt to impress nearby females. Like other types of doves, they're unusual in the bird world in that they produce a type of milk in their crop, which is a pouch in their throat, that they can feed to their hungry babies by letting them stick their bills into their mouths to drink in the nutritious food. No other birds that aren't doves do this. Spotted doves are also among the few birds that use their bills as a sort of straw to suck up water when they drink. Unlike all other birds that drink by dipping their bill into the water, then tipping their heads backwards to let the water run down their throat, spotted doves eat a variety of seeds and fruits, including those from a number of invasive plants such as Clydemia and Myconia. While they can be found from sea level up to 8,000 feet in elevation, they generally don't enter into our native forests, but when they do, they're likely spreading invasive plant seeds into these sensitive habitats. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. 
Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society, working to protect Hawaii's native wildlife through programs and projects such as its Kolea Count. Learn more about programs and volunteering at hiaudubon.org. Are you sitting comfortably? What makes a museum tick? Well, that's the concept behind Museum Confidential, a podcast created by Oklahoma's Philbrook Museum of Art in collaboration with Public Radio Tulsa. What started as a special project as part of an exhibit has become a popular podcast with over 100 episodes. Host Jeff Martin and his team dig into museum practices and art world issues. He talked with the Conversations of Lee and Song about plans for a live taping at the Honolulu Museum of Art on Friday. You know, it started out as a podcast that was tied to an exhibition of the same name that was going to be a special project. So we were only going to do a limited series based around that idea. But the success of the first season, and one of the things that we did that was so helpful and in retrospect was we reached out to a NPR station and did it as a co-promotion. And what did that do? One, on a very basic level, it provided us studio space. It provided us the tools, technical tools. It also allowed us to work with producers and editors. Our producer, Scott, who's going to be traveling to Hawaii with me for this event, has been there the whole time, was a co-creator for the show and edits and produces each episode and has been in the public radio world for a long time. So we were able to get his expertise in there as well. I am the host and I'll do copy. And I, you know, most of the time I'm finding the guests and, and uh, hunting down the topics. So I kind of handled the booking and the hosting and some of the writing, and he's definitely the producer and editor and puts the whole thing together. Mm. And another important member of your team, though, is the music. (laughs) Yes. One of the great benefits of having a public radio station partnership is that it allows you to have more freedom, you know, with what you can use in terms of licensing and music opportunities and different things like that. Sometimes we use music thematically, you know. Usually there's a different theme song or a different intro song every season. A year or so ago, for the season before this, we actually worked with a band and co-wrote a theme song. You know, because I was thinking about how old TV shows used to always have theme songs and game shows have theme songs. Like, why didn't we have a Museum Confidential theme song? And uh, so we worked together and did that, and we actually made records out of it to give away for when we do in-public things. But I think most podcasts that are about museums are about the inner workings, maybe, and the people who work there, and they're more targeted at people who are in that industry. Ours always was meant to be for people who just love going to museums or love the creative world or love art or artists or anything else. And also, we wanted the tone to be fun. You know, this is not a stuffy, intellectual exercise. This is something that has humor a little bit of irreverence from time to time, and hopefully people get that. And, you know, the reactions we've seen over seven seasons have have reinforced that initial instinct to do it that way. As I was scrolling through doing my research for this, I went back to your debut episode from October 13, 2017, and Mm -hmm. I noted down, like, what really struck me was the humor, the intimacy, straight out of the gate. I was just, like, drawn in. It was so candid, <laughs> and the person that you had on was Philbrook Museum Director Scott Stulen. And so that is where your museum is. Yeah, that's our home base. And, you know, that speaks back to why this show, based around, uh, based the podcast around, was that museum. And Scott, who's our director of the museum, curated that exhibition and was the you know, obvious first guest when it was just going to be about that show. So that made sense to us to have him be first. But I knew that even just for this special project, this little eight or 10 episode limited series, we wanted the tone to be everything. Because if you can make someone smile in the car or laugh while they're taking a walk or even sometimes just go, hmm, that's interesting. One of those three, ideally all three of those, but if you can get one of those three, that's a great entry point into making someone want to come back and experience whatever you're offering again. And with your team, who gets to do the writing? I mean, the headlines, 
I have a playlist going based on some of these <laughs> headlines. Yeah, you know, most of the copy is written by me, especially, you know, one of our favorite things to do are these fake ads that we do in the show. You know, because it's a public radio show, we don't have advertisements, but we need moments of pause. And so we always do fake advertisements for things in around the museum world. That could be as silly things like benches could be a sponsor one week and then maybe frames the next week. And then who knows, non-reflective glass, any kind of silly thing. And we make these ridiculously silly commercials for them. And I write all of those. Our producer, Scott, voices all of those. So he's the voice of all of our fake advertisements. But I will tell you, 100-plus episodes in, it gets difficult to come up with new jokes every week because the one rule we have is that we never want to repeat the same sponsor or the same joke or the same gimmick that we're using for that week. So the first 25 to 30 seemed pretty easy. But once we started getting into, like, you know, 60, 70, 80 episodes, you really are having to get creative about what element of the museum world you're going to lampoon at that week. <laughs> We knew that by making fun of ourselves and making fun of the industry a little bit that we could shatter some preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. And with each episode, though, you do really educate the listener. It's those unique voices, those perspectives, but your ability to educate us with history or some personalities that made an impact in the art world, in the museum space, giving the audience that space to learn and then to learn with you. You'll be in Honolulu Friday for a taping. Tell me about that. This is going to be a live show, so it'll be kind of like old-timey radio, you know, meaning like we're going to do live ads and we're going to do music cues and sound and things like that in the, in the talk. But I'm going to be interviewing two really interesting people, one being a neuroscientist and the other one being an architect. And we're going to be talking about basically the intersection between creativity and your brain, right? They have an amazing show at the museum there right now, which is dealing with floral art and the kind of natural world. This is kind of a topic we've never really done before. And, you know, we talk a lot about art and art museums. There's tons of science museums and technological museums as well. So it's certainly within our, our wheelhouse. But the intersection there is just something we've never really done before. So coming to a beautiful place like Hawaii to talk about the natural world and the intersection between science and art and beauty and, and all those different things is going to be a really special opportunity uh, hmm. for us to be there in person. You know, we've done enough of these to where you can, you know, practice makes perfect at least or it makes better. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Really love podcasts because there's that ability to listen on one's own schedule, at one's own pace. Going through your archives, I really also was impressed by, it's also an archive of the time. You guys did a piece during COVID, Letter from Prison to a Cat. Mm. Yeah, that is our most listened to episode. The museum I work at, Silbrook Museum, during the height of the pandemic, when we were closed to the public and the staff was told to stay home and not do our usual jobs, morale was quite low and we were trying to figure out something to do. And so one of our staff members at that time, we have these beautiful gardens at our museum and we have these cats who would roam around the grounds and they became famous over the years. People would come and you'd spot them and people just loved our garden cats. They kind of served as pest control, but they became more just like lazy cats who sat around and got pictures taken of them by guests. They were beloved, beloved creatures. When the pandemic happened, one of our staff members thought, you know, maybe we let people write little pen pal notes to our cats just to have something to do at home. And it was originally thought that we might do that digitally, like email. Then we thought, no, let's do something real. So we actually printed stationery, and we had three cats at that time. They each got their own kind of personality traits. And we made a promise to ourselves that if someone wrote to cats, we would write back in their, you know, in their voice, quote unquote. And we started out and then all of a sudden it just took off. So places like People Magazine and other national outlets started writing about this project. And of course, that took our numbers to a different level. So all of a sudden we're getting boxes and boxes of letters from all over the country and then eventually outside the country and having to respond to that. We had teams of people at the museum, you know, responding to these letters. And it really gave people something, you know, kind of silly, but nice distraction at that time when we needed something to boost morale. But well, then one day we got a letter from a man in prison 
who had written to one of the cats. And it's just a gut-wrenching story. He kind of just spills his whole life story and tells his tragic tale to this cat. And it moved us so much that we decided to share that piece. It's anonymous. We don't share the person's name you know, or any kind of identifiers, really, of where they are. It was just such a moving story. We decided to just record that, have it read. It's a pretty short podcast, too. It's like 10 minutes or less. And gosh, I've just heard so much about that story. It's, it's hard to listen to and not get choked up. It's that intentionality, that intersection of life and, you know, what you guys were experiencing during COVID and then to have this episode come out because of just a team member's idea of, hey, let's let's start a pen pal yeah. system for yeah, our it's, cats. It's, it's, sometimes, you know, there's, here's what I will say about that. There's a world in which someone could come up with something like that and someone would say, that's ridiculous. We're not going to waste our time doing that. We're not going to devote resources. We're not going to print stationery and spend money on things like that. But, you know, our leadership and our team knew that, you know, we didn't think it would blow up the way it did, but we knew that it was important to have something positive to put our time into and that that could be very much a positive thing. And, you know, having the foresight to see that is chalked up to good leadership and also trying things, you know. Maybe we did it and nothing happened. Well, what's the worst that happens? Some people write some letters to a cat, you move on with your life. But maybe if we could connect with people, it would do something greater than the sum of its parts. And it really did. That was a really special time. That was Jeff Martin, host and co-creator of Museum Confidential and HPR's Lillian Song. He and his co-creator, Scott Gregory of Public Radio Tulsa, are in town for a live taping of the popular podcast at the Honolulu Museum of Art this Friday. You'll be able to hear the episode when it drops on npr.org, Spotify, and Apple. We'll share links on our website. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we talk renewable energy with those at the top at AES Hawaii. Share your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find all of our shows archived online by searching for The Conversation Podcast, also on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Mm-hmm.